Hello, good morning and welcome to Straight Talking English. My name is Catherine. I am here to talk you through the AQA English Literature Syllabus, starting with the anthology poems, both Love and Relationships and Power and Conflict. I am a qualified English teacher and I will be guiding you through the poems in my own unteacherly way. First up today, continuing the romantic with a big R vibe, we have got William Blake's London. As you can tell from my accent, I am from South London and this is being recorded in South London. Blake was also lived in London for a very long time. He was born in 1757. He trained as an artist or illustrator. I'm not quite sure what the difference is, but I assume an illustrator does paintings that go with books. And I know that he did a set of illustrations that go with the Bible, which you can Google and are quite frankly all over the place. Really big year for him was 1789. Not only because it was the French Revolution, he wrote a seven-volume book that he never actually published on why the French Revolution is awesome, and he wrote arguably his bestseller, I mean, to a given value of bestseller, the, the big name titles, Songs of Innocence. He followed that up in 1793 with Songs of Experience, not literal songs that would have been, frankly, a whole lot better, to be honest. But both these sets of poems have, like, partners. So in Songs of Innocence, it would kind of be, this is where I went to the park as a young man, and then its partner in experience would be, this is where I went to the park as an adult. But London's a weird one, because London doesn't have a partner. London is from Songs of Experience, the grown-up one, but it doesn't have a partner in Songs of Innocence. It's a uniquely adult experience. If there is one word that sums up William Blake, it is radical and we don't mean the 1960s adjective big r meaning there's a lot of things that he thought were a bit rubbish that we would consider quite normal he really really hated the idea of organized religion not any religion specifically just the idea that someone else can regulate your spirituality he really really hated the idea of marriage he said it was like a kind of slavery again really ironic considering as he was married his whole life though again i found this out they he wanted to have an open marriage where they would bring in other partners and his wife nearly left him and in her writings at the time it said quote unquote he tried to bring a concubine into their bed which it's a bit sleazy for someone who's so high-minded but throughout their life there would always be like a female flatmate so I'm assuming that this philosophy extended to his personal life the big point that we need to remember at the time is this is coming during a place of reaction to rationality so we think of the long 18th century as being what we call the enlightenment there's inverted commas around that it's a time of huge scientific philosophical expansion all of a sudden we've gone from really basic scientific methods to what's essentially pre-modern and intellectual people for the first time are getting a sense of human progress so we've gone from a 
to be and now we're heading to see. A lot of the philosophies that we take for granted today, big example is the social contract, the idea that we do something for society, so society should give back to us, comes from this period. We also have the French Revolution. I've mentioned this twice now, but it bears a little bit more looking into. Broad facts are, and I'm cutting this as due to the French king being very unpopular and ignoring the middle class, there was a revolution and the end of which was a republic is established and the king is executed along with his family. So we have the first major power in Europe that is ruled as a republic. Starts off really hopeful. We are intelligent. We have this enlightenment philosophy behind us. But within three years, it descends into what's called the terror, in which it's like guillotining left, right and centre. That's where Blake is coming from. So 1789, the really hopeful set of poems 93 is during the terror and he's like oh my gosh after 1790 so when he was about 33 so just a little bit older than me he developed this new tone in his poems where he became this like weird prophet there will be a new social order there will be a religious new religious order the good will be on top the wicked will be punished and the whole way through his life he is absolutely obsessed with the bible christianity religious imagery i don't really see him as being a regular churchgoer in my mind he's like that guy on the street corner who's handing out leaflets and has a megaphone and keep shouting that I'm gonna be saved when I'm trying to cross the road. It's got it's just this really out there interpretation of everything. He is actually really, really cool as a person. And I really hope you look into Blake a little bit more because he is one of history's tremendous eccentrics and frankly a weirdo. But London comes up in the power and conflict half of the anthology and it's one of the few where there is not a direct conflict referred to. It's not like exposure where it's quite clear there's a war on. The conflict here is more hidden. We've got four very regular stanzas and we have a very regular rhyme scheme. Goes street, meet, flow, woe, man, ban, fear, here. It's very organised. But we've got the split in the rhyme as well, the split couplets, generally used to describe things being separated from each other. So what is the separation? Is it the people from their environment? Is it people from their happiness? Is it right and wrong? Is it Blake feeling separated? We're not sure. There's not that much I can say about the structure, aside from it is very organised. So I'm just going to dive straight in to the language. He's got a very subtle approach to display this tone of just despair and disgust at everything he sees. Honestly, kind of wondering where in London he lives, because I don't normally feel despair and disgust when I'm walking down my street, but there are some places where I do feel like despairing, especially when the bus doesn't come. So it starts off as, I wander through each chartered street. We've got the wandered. This verb shows he's kind of lost. 
either deliberately or intentionally. He's not strolling, he's not pacing, he's just got this aimlessness. Chartered. Think about chartered accountants. Think about it's bought and sold. Everything is commodified, regulated. Then in every face he meets, is it really every face? Okay, we've got the hyperbole to show his extreme emotion. And he sees marks of weakness, marks of woe. The what weakness and the what woe are our alliteration. It's used to create a sense of urgency. So this prophetic message which he is sharing is incredibly important that he shares with us. In the cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear. During the Romantic period, there is this sense that, well, the famous phrase is the son is father to the man. So if we look at people's childhood experiences, it will explain what they're like now. Not that shocking a thing, really. If someone had a rough childhood, it may well affect their adult life. But it's a pretty revolutionary concept. Remember again that Romantics are focusing on emotion rather than following the rules. So even though Blakey is following the rules, he's still clearly displaying his emotions. In every voice, in every ban, ban means cottage or like little village in this sense, the mind-forged manacles I hear. Mind-forged manacles is an amazing line. I actually used it when trying to explain to my father-in-law what the British class system is. He was very, very confused, but it's, it's a lovely, lovely metaphor. If something's forged by your mind. It's created internally, it's created psychologically. Manacles are handcuffs, so either people have chosen to be imprisoned by the city, or people have had this imprisonment imposed on them, but it's not an obvious imprisonment, it's not regulated by the police, it's not a clear, you know, we're putting you in handcuffs, you did a bad thing, it's all very internal, but it's showing on their faces and these marks of woe, so it's obvious from the outside these people are chained, but they may not know it. A little bit more context, chimney sweepers. It is the grimmest of grim professions. So imagine you've got a big chimney in your house. So I'm sitting in my living room, we have what used to be a big chimney and is now just a bit of the wall, about two metres wide by about 50 centimetres fire would be lit underneath it smoke goes up and your chimney gets dirty full of like black hole dust and you've got to clean it out so to get someone down that space so from where I'm sitting about 50 centimeters wide you need to be a child or a very small child either because they're skinny or they're malnourished and people would forget they sent them up there and light a fire under them and then they just cook or kids would literally get stuck there till they died it's the most horrible profession and because these kids were ill malnourished a lot of them came under the church's protection especially since a lot of them were orphans so when he says how the chimney sweepers cry it's a critique of organized religion because the church should have protected them and also it's playing on this popular very very pitiful image of this young probably just awful looking kid being stuck it's a popular cause that people are getting behind it links into the blackening church 
much. He's cut out the E in blackening so it fits the rhyme a little bit better, but we can just say blackening. It could be that its reputation is blackened because of how it isn't supporting people. Could link to corruption. Could be the church which was all lovely and pure is now dark and corrupt. I always like to think of it literally as well because with the Industrial Revolution, we've got factories for the first time in London. It's gone from being like lovely pure air to the horrible fogs and smogs that we might see in Jekyll and Hyde. And buildings which were beautiful and white are now getting a bit grey and greasy. If you're out and about in Central, you will see the dirt still on the buildings from the industrial era. We've got the hapless soldiers sigh. Even the soldiers who are generally seen as being quite bad and ruthless, are hapless. They're being exploited by this system as well. And they're being exploited by those in power. We've got the warning. Runs in blood down palace walls. If you keep exploiting people, you're going to get what's coming to you. Same as happened in France. Direct reference to the French Revolution about how the ruling classes are in for it to want of a better word absolutely in for it for the way they've treated people let's talk about the useful harlot in the false stanza so for some reason all these poems when i look into uh, the context end up being a little bit mature in their themes shall we say so literally a harlot is an immoral person sexually immoral young lady youthful could mean that she is really young or it could mean she looks young but this is a time where there is not an age of consent where essentially if one was a harlot or a sex worker there wouldn't be any protection available for children because of their age someone like Blake who is very much a caring person despite his rage deep inside would be absolutely shocked by this in the same way that we would be if we walked down the street and saw a young person being exploited. Her curse that she gives out could just be hatred against the world that's put her in this position. It's creating problems for the new generation. What her words that she uses, this black magic in the curse, is being cast forward to the newborn baby. Innocence is already corrupted. The inner of this young girl who's become a harlot is already shows her corruption and she's corrupting the next generation but the marriage hearse obviously our juxtaposition because we wouldn't expect a marriage to involve something as unpleasant as a funeral vehicle her actions are killing marriage marriage has become trapping deadly straight up awful because of what society has done to young people everything is hardened and the idea of any kind of traditional commitment is dead now well (laughs) we know Blake's agenda there I mean he's made it pretty clear that he doesn't approve of any kind of organized regulation of anything but back to the biblical stuff blights with plagues think back to story of Moses 10 plagues of Egypt one of them I believe is death of the firstborn and it's back to this prophetic tone that links in with runs in blood down palace walls God sent the plagues to the Egyptians as a punishment plagues will happen in London as a punishment and while we're far 
far on in history from the plague, the Black Death. This is a time of horrific illnesses. There's outbreaks of cholera in East London, like, till quite late. The punctuation, comma, comma, enjambment full stop, comma, 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 colon. It's got the whole mix in here. We know that enjambment, or enjambment, where a sentence runs over from one line to the next without any punctuation separating it. So, for example, in the fourth stanza, but most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse, blast the newborn infant's tear. It's all one sentence. Enjambment is used generally to represent flow or natural speech. So he could be presenting this as if this is his spontaneous declaration of this is what I feel. Oh, it could be showing the flow of his walk, could be showing the flow of time, could be showing the flow of this chartered Thames. We also have the colons used to separate ideas. It goes from being his immediate observations to wider issues. Every cry, every infant's cry, every voice I hear, and then it switches to wider social issues that he's inferring. I just mentioned, well, I just surprised myself, actually. I can't believe I missed this. Repetition of cry keeps coming up, cries and tears. Repetition is used to present the main single idea or single image in each text. So the one image that he wants us to take away from this is the image of someone crying. I like it, I like it. He, um, he's got some guts on him. I mean, I don't agree with a lot of what he's saying, and I think if I met him in real life, I would probably turn and walk the other way. But um, I like it. He's got a fire in his belly, bless him. Uh, when he died, he, well, his quote-unquote female lodger wrote in her diary that it's not a man that's died, it's a blessed angel. <laughs> bless him. And I think he sold about 30 copies of his books before he died, so he's one of life's outsiders. But he did a good job on this one. Obvious comparisons, partners for this one would be Osmandius, because of romanticism and the fact it's presented as natural speech. Prelude, because it's, again, it's this monologue, romantic, showing the images of youth and outside effects on youth. We could make a partner with emigre quite nicely in terms of relationships between people and cities. If you felt very confident, you could make a partnership with Tissue about how we have our identities, how we can tell things about places. I would steer clear of pairing this with any of the First World War ones, if I were you. It sits nicely in the first half of the anthology. Thank you for listening. I am all blaked out now. Next time I speak to you is going to be a bit of a Robert Browning double bill. Both half the anthology have Porphyria's lover and My Last Duchess as their representative of Browning. So we have a little bit of a, a Browning fest. I hope you have a lovely day. Hope all this imagery of blackening churches and youthful harlots doesn't completely drag you down and have a good annotation.